0: is the Traveling Designer Podcast. Um, My name is Rick Oberrider and I am your host and this is episode three. I come to you from a place called Carter Lake, which is a little bit south of Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, So I feel like a lot's happened since episode two. I was in in the Sequoia National Park area. I then drove my camper there, from there all the way back to Bend, Oregon, where I had a Subaru stored there and I swapped out my camper for my Subaru and then drove to Colorado. Um, I lived here for for fifteen years, so um, it's good to be back in the Rocky Mountains and to see my friends. So we're going to be, you know, car camping and uh, tent camping for the next five weeks. So we'll see how that goes. In my head, it's going to be a, a romantic and cool thing, but um, <laughs> we will, we will see. Um, so yeah, let's just jump. Let's get to it and jump to the topic for for episode three. Um, the last episode I actually recorded from my campsite in Sequoia National Forest, and then next day, I took a hike, my first hike in the area, and and I pretty much knew what I wanted to talk about as soon as I did that hike. Um, so I I named the podcast episode "Artists, National Parks, and How We All Fit In," and it's a little broad, um, but I'm just gonna kind of jump in, kind of start with the hike, and just kind of go, and you guys can all figure it out <laughs> as I go. Uh, But so the next day I was doing this hike and the goal was to go to this place called the Bully tree Um, I Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the Bully tree is the largest Sequoia tree in the Sequoia National Forest and actually I just learned it's the sixth largest uh, Sequoia tree or tree in the world So you go through this place called the Converse Basin and the Converse Basin is actually the largest the second largest Sequoia Grove in the world so um, actually, you can drive the first part of this trail, but the road is closed. So I, I hiked it, which is even better anyway. So you're you know walking through, and you know it's kind of like the old growth and old forests, and you start to see the sequoia trees. Um, one of the first things you do notice is that most of the sequoias are you know they're babies, they're younger sequoias, they're like 100, 200 years old, um, not the big ones that you would that most people would think of. And you kind of keep walking you know, and it is beautiful, like I said, um, then you come out to a place called Stump Meadow, you know, as you start walking, you see a few of what used to be the big trees, um, and they're just stumps now, and then you come, like I said, to Stump Meadow, and this is dozens upon dozens upon dozens of, of stumps, and these are the, the big sequoias, the sequoias that are, you know, two, three thousand years old, and I don't know, maybe it was fitting that, you know, the day I did the hike, it was, It was very foggy. A lot of times I can only see, you know, 10 feet in front of me, you know, but you do, you know, there's just stumps, you know, all over, dozens and dozens. So I don't know, it's something that just kind of gets you thinking, you know, there's a a placard, you know, that starts talking about the logging that happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and that most of these old sequoia trees are now gone. So yeah, it's something that, you know, you definitely notice and it definitely got me thinking and thinking about things. So then, that next day, I did a hike, same grove, opposite side, and it was called um, the Chicago or excuse me the Chicago stump. And another really beautiful hike, and you come across and this stump. I mean, even the stump was impressive, um, but this, this particular tree was 3,200 years old when it was cut down, and and the story kind of goes. I think it was like a someone who had money you know, kind of butt rights to the tree and he cut the tree down for the 1893 Chicago's World's Fair. So he cut the tree down, shipped it to Chicago, and put the tree back up again. It's pretty crazy. So, um, so how do you think the people of the fair responded to this tree? They actually, you know, called it the California hoax. You know, people didn't think that a tree of that magnitude or that big could exist you know so think about that for a second you know there are people hearing you know people in california who not only know these the know of these big trees but are cutting them down in droves and droves and then the rest of the country can't even fathom that something like this could even exist so i know it's pretty interesting you know i mean this was the late 1800s you know so i'm not going to sit here and you know blame those people for cutting down all the trees you know, but it is a little sad you know most of these lumber companies you know didn't make money I mean they a lot of them went out of business and they were actually saying that only 50% of the Sequoia trees actually made it to the mill you know most of the a lot of these trees, the Sequoias they cut them down and they hit the ground and they had to just shatter you know, because they're so big and the wood just is is just different it's it's a more of a fragile wood than you know some other trees so it's just it would just shatter so they were saying that most of the of the 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 wood that actually didn't make it to the mill only became, you know, um, fence posts. So uh, I don't know if that was worth to cut down all these, you know, beautiful trees to build some fences, but that's what was going on at the late 1800s. But anyway, so thank God for people who had vision for the future, you know, people like John Muir, you know, who was called the father of the national parks. Um, if you don't know much about him, um, do a quick. You know, if you have some interest, you should Google him. You know, he's a very interesting fellow. He was a Scottish immigrant. Him and his, fam- he's, his family, when he was young, settled in Wisconsin, and he started traveling. I mean, he, in his lifetime, he traveled the world, but you know, he just started. He w- would start walking, and he eventually made it to to California. And if you know much about him, he, you know that he just fell in love with California and really fell in love with the Sequoia area and he spent some time living there and definitely did lots of lots of work to try to protect Sequoia the whole Sequoia area um, he also, you know, he was called the father of the national parks and he had direct involvement with creating Sequoia National Park Mount Rainier, which is in Washington, Petrified Forest which I believe is in Arizona, and uh, Grand Canyon National Parks you know, so, I mean, he did his Monumental middle and, and a lot of a lot of this conservation stuff happening in the early 1900s he lobbied successfully for the creation of Yosemite National Park in 1890 then asked for additional protection for the area before it was actually a national park um, through Theodore Roosevelt. and in actually in 1901 Muir um, published a book called our national parks that brought um, the tension of Theodore Roosevelt's and in May of 1903 President Roosevelt camped with John Muir near Glacier Point, which is in the Sequoia National Park. And on that trip, you know, Muir convinced Roosevelt to take control of the Yosemite Valley and the Sequoia Groves in of, of that area and return it to the federal government. And in 1906, Roosevelt did precisely that, and that's when uh, Yosemite became an official national park. So he was monumental in In so much that happens, you know, when it comes to the protection of of national parks, national forests, you know, all all that stuff throughout throughout the West. Um, Pretty interesting stuff. Um, When I was a kid, I was lucky enough to go to Yellowstone and Tetons many times for family vacations. You know, we would I think we, we had a Chevy Impala, and we had a conversion van that we would bring out, and we had and we had an old pop up. Camper. We would come and camp out in the national parks. And one of the things that I love, that I remember and really enjoyed was at the end of the night, you know, the Rangers would have a program and, you know, you go to the amphitheater and they would have a big bonfire. And the Rangers would talk about, you know, something to do with the national parks or with, you know, wildlife or something. And that was just something that I always really, really enjoyed and something that I, you know, really remembered. So a few years back when I was road tripping, um, I, had a, I was in Crater Lake and they had a ranger talk and I you know, made sure I went. And, and the talk was something that stuck with me. It was some, and, the, and the subject was talking about artists, especially photographers, and how they helped in the protection of many of the national parks. You know, people like John Muir would take photographers to all these amazing places and have photographers take photos and they would send these photos back to Washington to show all the poli- you know, the politicians and government officials these amazing, amazing places. And uh, I don't know, for some reason that this really stuck with me. You know, I'm, I'm a huge lover of the outdoors and I'm also an artist myself. I went to art school in Denver, so it's like, you know, combining two of the things that I really love the most, you know, and there's something about artists that you know, going to art school and just being one myself and being around artists is like, you know, we all have a different way that we see the world, right? A different skew. And I think artists have the ability to kind of convey, you know, how they see the world. You know, I don't think all of us have that ability, you know, but artists have always, you know, been ones to make us think, inspire us, challenge us, inform us. And, you know, now, you know, I start to learn about how, You know, they helped us see the beauty that we didn't even know existed for all these amazing places, you know, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In actuality, even way before that, you know, I sometimes think it's funny how we come across information or or maybe how information finds us. Um, One of the things I like to do, I'm not a big consumer by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the things that I do like to collect are the press pennies that you You get a you know national parks and other like tourist places, you know, you put in the two quarters put in the penny crank the the Thing and it pops out like a little design, you know another artist who created those So uh, I have a collection of those. I have been actually I started collecting them as an adult. I actually never collect them much as a kid and so I have a few of them and um, I actually met a friend of mine who A friend of mine she also likes to collect them and she was nice enough to send me one of the little you know it's a little book that you can put all put all your pennies in you know kind of like you would do with baseball cards but much smaller but on the back of that there was this um, little paragraph talking about an artist named George Catlin and he was an artist a painter back in the 1830s and his kind of specialty was he he traveled the Great Plains and he painted buffalo and native americans and artists back in those days you know they were kind of renaissance men to a certain extent because they went and they you know not only painted or you know took took photos a little bit later but they they journaled and wrote books and did all kinds of kinds of different things and you know because a lot of the people and at the time a lot of these areas haven't been explored all that much so you know in the 1830s he became acutely aware of the balance of, of nature was being dist- one part of, of nature was being destroyed and what was happening was the people of the east really loved the the skins of the buffalo. And they you know, it was a fashionable thing in the East back then. So they lots of people in the East would come and they would hire the Native Americans to go and kill the buffalo to get the hides. And you know I guess by higher I mean that they were basically trading liquor whiskey and such so the Native Americans you know started not to use the entire animal like they were accustomed of doing and they would let they would kill the buffalo and just let them rot in the Sun and take them just so they could get the liquor so I mean it's a little sad so but George Catlin realized that if this continued that the native america that the buffalo would actually become extinct you know something that again that wasn't thought about back then so but but the point of the story is he was one of the first well maybe the first person to ever kind of come up with the concept of the national parks and i think with every great concept you know comes some tweaking because his idea that he wrote in a book of his was that he wanted to take a bunch of land, and he was thinking the entire plains, kind of the Midwest, and set, you know, and have it be controlled by the government, and people could come and not only see the buffalo roam in their natu- in their natural habitat, but also the Native Americans. Yeah, so yeah, I don't necessarily, yeah, I don't agree with the part of uh, people going to watch other people in a national park, but like I said, with every great idea comes some tweaking. So that was the, the first time I got that idea got planted. The first national park, Yellowstone, was created in 1872 and that had to do with a lot with a couple of artists as well. Um, The Hayden Expedition reported on the majestic scenery of the area and was um, vividly recorded and captured by two artists. One of them was a well-known photographer named William Henry Jackson and another one was uh, not well-known as a, a young painter named Thomas Moran in 1871 they set out to do a government survey of the land and for two weeks you know Moran filled a sketchbook with uh, the stunning landscapes of Yellowstone and with Jackson's photos and Moran's watercolors there was the first kind of renderings of the time um there was those were sent back to uh Congress and the you know the photographs were proof that you know, some of the art, you know, there's been some artists who did some stuff, you know, before that, but it was the photographs especially was proof that, you know, these places really existed. You know, places like Yosemite and Yellowstone and Grand Canyon were really established through photography and art. You know, artists created these images and put them out in the public and, you know, they get repeated over and over again. And these become the established views of what we see. You know, it really shapes, you know, how we see and understand these spaces. You know other artists such as John Ferry. He was hired to he was hired by the Great Northern Railroad to paint Glacier National Park. And Carlton E. Watkins uh, he photographed um, the Yosemite Valley, and this was back, you know, in the 1830s. And that some of his work helped convince Abraham Lincoln to sign and preserve the Valley in 1864, way before John Muir was even in the area. Then there's the Cole brothers, and they took uh, photos of the Grand Canyon and they were the first to kind of explore the national park tourism by selling photos and leather-bound albums to to tourists. Uh, They built a studio, actually, in 1906 at the Canyon's Rim, and even though they ran into some issues with the park service over the years, over various issues, um, the studio still stands today. And, of course, there's Ansel Adams. Uh, He started uh, taking photos of Yosemite in 1909, and even at an early age, you know, took a really famous uh, photo of Half Dome, in 1909 you know he joined the sierra club and spent the first of four summers in the in the yosemite valley uh, working at the memorial lodge so adams was kind of like the artist that brought art and conservation together you know, Adam, you know adams was an activist um, for the cause of wilderness and the environment um, and over the years he you know he attended meetings wrote thousands of letters in support of um, his conservation you know philosophies to newspaper editors, you know, through the Sierra Club, you know, to the Wilderness Society colleagues, governments, bureaucrats, politicians, you know, anyone he can, you know, he could get in front of, you know, but obviously, you know, his influence came in his photography. You know, his images, like, you know, became symbols, you know, icons of wild America, you know, back in, you know, the early 1900s. You know, um, when people thought about national parks, or nature, or the environment itself, you know, they often thought about them in, in terms of an Ansel Adams photograph. You know, as, as I was doing some reading on Ansel Adams, I came across this little sentence that I thought was kind of cool that I thought I would read. I said, his black and white images were not realistic documents of nature. He created a sense of sublime magnificence of nature that infused the viewer with the emotional equivalent of wilderness often more powerful than the actual thing you know was just you know Adams too like Mir was uh really ahead of his time you know uh, for Adams the environmental issues of particular importance were Yosemite National Park the national park system and above all the preservation of wilderness you know, he focused on what he termed was the spiritual emotional aspects of parks and wilderness and really resisted the parks resortism that led to overdevelopment of the national parks you know he he fought for new parks and wilderness areas he fought for the wilderness act um, wild alaska big sur which is in central california the redwoods you know endangered sea lions and sea otters for clean water and clean air he advocated for balance you know restraint of resources adams also fought resent- relentlessly against overbuilt highway systems billboards you know and other environmental short-sightedness You know, and while doing all of this, you know, he treated his opponents with, you know, respect and courtesy. You know, Adams was commissioned by all kinds of companies to photograph national parks all over the country. As a member of the Sierra Club, advocated for the establishment of uh, Kings Canyon National Park, a place that I was just at, that became reality in uh, 1940. Um, Something that, you know, John Muir wasn't even able to do years before, you know, which is some pretty powerful stuff. You know, when I was in the Tetons uh, last year, you know, I was, uh, I got up one morning to go, I like to get up really early and go look for wildlife, but I was coming down and there was a turn off. And I just, and I didn't really know why I I turned off there. It was just, I wanted to get a view of the mountains, but it was an area where there's a famous photo that Ansel Adams took of the Snake River and uh, the Tetons that kind of come up behind it. And you can stand in the exact same spot where he took that photo and you can take that exact same photo. And, you know, I think that right there is like the example of what they were trying to achieve, right? Like, you can sit there and, I mean, obviously, the you know, for the most part, you're taking the exact same photo he took. And obviously you can see how, you know, nature has changed over 100 plus years, you know. But the fact that you can take, a fo- you know, take that same exact photo is showing that the work that all these people put in over all those years you know is is really you know paying off you know so I guess the last part of this is like what does that mean for today you know obviously you know there's still artists um, doing work for the park you know you walk in any you know gift shop and all the you know the postcards and the shirts and them everything is are done by artists you know um besides the press pennies thing I said before you know another thing that I really I do like to collect are those uh, National Parks posters and that was done by a photographer and graphic graphic designer named Rob Decker who also worked under Ansel Adams in Yosemite back in the 1940s and most of the the art when it's done when it pertains to the National Parks today you know is geared more towards conservation and further protection more than just merely showing the beauty of the National Parks in general. So maybe trying to come full circle a little bit. Um, When I was in King's Canyon a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go back to one of those ranger presentations or programs. And the topic of conversation was bringing big, you know, big wildlife back into habitats in which they at one time inhabited. So one of the examples was was when they decided to bring the wolves back into the Teton or Yellowstone in like the mid19 mid1990s and you know there's a lot of people who were a little worried about about bringing them back in because they were predators and they thought they would just kind of kill everything you know but back you know during the time the elk population was way up and you know they were they were destroying you know lots of the grasslands and the rivers were changing so they thought it was important to try and they were amazed of what happens you know so they bring the wolves back in and they brought you know, brought the, the elk population down and, you know, the you know, the prairies and the grassland started recovering and the, the rivers actually went back to their natural form and the riverbanks healed and that brought in beavers and brought in, you know, other animals and brought in, you know, fish and birds and they thought it was amazing what transpired and all of that. And, you know, I bring this up because, you know, like the ecosystem, you know, it's all interconnected. You know, as Ansel, you know, Ansel Adams said, you know, we are all connected. You know, we're all connected to these places, and it's our responsibility to protect them, so our, you know, our children can see them, and our children, children's children can not only enjoy them but also learn from all of the national parks and the wilderness, and wilderness and everything that wilderness. The wilderness has to teach us. but I also think that interconnectedness has to deal with the fact that it's our responsibility to make sure we have you know clean air clean water and you know overall this is a clean earth to live in you know so get out there and you know do things enjoy you know go to the national parks or you know go get a parks pass and you know go camp and you know try to support support and do what you can go to go to the lake on the weekends you know, and when it comes to, you know, to all these issues, if it's, you know, you know, the national parks or, you know, nature in general is, you know, is I think to realize that to try to see all these things as human beings, and it might sound a little weird, but, you know, I think we all have to understand, you know, the world we live in, or especially the United States we live in right now, and, you know, just to, you know, see the issues as they are, and, you know, the greatest, thing, the greatest thing that we have is the ability to be free thinkers. And one of the greatest, you know, parts about living in the country that we live in is the fact that we have the ability to express those thoughts, you know, and, and have all the re- resources we need at our fingertips. You know, so if you have a passion for something, you know, if it's nature or whatever it is, you know, um, you know, go in and do the work and do the research and do the best job you can do to come up with the best decisions that you that you can. You know, talk to people that, you know, have different viewpoints than you. And, you know, it's start discussions because all those things help us compile information that we need to make good decisions, you know, for things that are happening now and things that are going to be happening for future generations. Alright, that was a little off topic, but basically the main point is, you know, get out there and enjoy. Get out and enjoy everything. and. You know a bypass you know go camping um if you can't do that uh, the national parks foundation is a great organization that helps allocate some money to the national parks um one of the things i enjoy doing is designing t-shirts you know i to say that's you know not the sexiest shirt you're ever going to buy but it will help you know the national parks as i will give some of the money to the national parks foundation so you can find uh, my t-shirt collection on my through my website um so those are the those are the main things so you know i want to thank everyone for listening and thank you for to all the artists out there who are out there um doing great work and you know out there informing us and inspiring us and challenging us every day to you know to get of our out of our comfort zone and to uh you know push our viewpoints and and to um continue to challenge us all right so two quick points before i we sign off. Um, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning, but I'm doing the podcast actually from my tent, and it really started to rain, so hopefully uh, the raindrops uh, didn't affect the hearing too much, That it maybe adds the ambiance a little bit. And uh, also, I made one point about John Muir as well, where I think I said something about the sequoia, where he loved the sequoias, and obviously, but he spent a lot of his time in Yosemite. That is where he really fell in love, so I just wanted to make sure that I brought that uh, I said that really quickly. So, um, as usual, I like to uh, you know end with a quote. And this is something I feel like really ties everything together really well. And it's from Theodore Roosevelt. And this is and it goes something like this. There can be nothing in this world more beautiful than Yosemite. The girls are the giant sequoias and redwoods. The canyon of the Colorado. The canyon of the Yellowstone. The three Tetons. And our people should see it. That they are all preserved for the children and their children's children forever with them with their majestic beauty all unmarred so i think that's um, an excellent quote so i think like i said kind of brings everything completely full circle so i want to thank everyone for listening um this was a, a challenging episode for me to kind of uh you know i was bringing a lot of information and learning i learned so much in trying to you know pass on some information so it was a little bit something different so i hope you know, you learned as, learned as much as I did and enjoyed it. And uh, until next time, um, I thank you again and get out there and explore. To listen to all the episodes and to read my blog, go to www.travelingdesigner.co. That's www.travelingdesigner.co.